Good morning, Four Points. How are you this morning? It's good to be here with you guys. This is like my, uh, this is like my fourth, just finishing up my fourth week being on staff. And before I jump into the Word, I think I just, I just really want to say how uh, amazing it is to be a part of staff where even exemplified by Pastor Russ this morning, just understanding, hey, um, I, I, we all need a rest and we all need an opportunity to sit under the Word. And it's easy for speakers to come to the Word as if we're over it somehow, that I'm preaching God's Word. And, uh, but boy, that, that is not the vision here. And I am blessed to be a part of a staff like that. I'm blessed to be a part of a people with a culture like that. So, so good to be here with you guys. Um, I, this morning, I shared a st- story just because I felt like uh, it really was for someone in the body. And then when I d- delivered that, uh, I honestly just thought, okay, well, I got that done. Check that off my list and get, get that out of here. And boy, I'm just going to jump in the message. And then I'm over here worshiping. And, uh, and I feel like God's just saying, hey, you need to go ahead and take, share this. So uh, this morning, as it's my typical habit is to get up when I'm going to preach on a Sunday morning or preach really anytime, I tend to get up early in the morning. Now, that, that means a lot. Uh, coming from me because I hate getting up. Now, I know nobody like that is here. Nobody here is like that. You guys are just stellar stewards of your time, and you just jump up at five in the morning, no problem. But that's not, the, that's not me, okay? I hate, I hate getting up in the morning. But I got up this morning around 4.30, got ready, started, uh, I, I did some, you know, just review of my sermon, and then I just felt, okay, I'm going to worship the Lord. Threw some worship music on, and I'm worshiping the Lord in the living room. I'm trying to keep it quiet as possible. I got kids, you know, family. And my son, Liam, who's eight, comes running out at 5, I think it was 5.30. And I just thought, no, oh, why? You know, but he comes out, and kid you not, he is dressed to the nines. He's got a button-up shirt, bright orange, ready to go to church, right? And, and I'm blessed. I'm like, okay, this, now I know God's doing something, you know, because he's actually ready before leaving, right? Before I'm getting in the car, he's actually ready. So God's, God's on the move. And I, I, he runs up to me, and he gives me this big old hug, right? And worship, the worship music is playing, and, uh, and I reach down to hug him, and he kind of you know, kids sometimes, they just jump right up in your arms and they, they just spider monkey and put their legs all up around you and stuff. So I just grabbed and picked him up and I thought, hey, he wants me to carry him. That's, that's not often, but I'm, I'm going to do it, right? And I just start worshiping the Lord while he's in my arms and he just wants to stay there. Like he's just staying there as I'm worshiping and I'm kind of singing and, and I'm not the best singer. So man, praise the Lord. He must have felt something more than just my voice, you know? And uh, man, I got to tell you, I just started praying over him. And, and, and then that really bled into my other kids as I was holding them. I was like, God, I just, and then from there, I, st- I started praying for the sermon and I started praying for, for four points. I started praying for each, and every one of you guys. I'm just saying, God, ah, this can't be about me. This can't be about finding a new, fresh thing to speak about. This is not about, this is not about sounding good or building a platform for myself. God, this is for your people. God, would you just speak your word through me? And I really started interceding, and as I'm holding my son, and in that moment, I felt like the Holy Spirit just, he just rested on my heart, and I felt like he, he just said, son, the same way that you as a father are holding your son and singing over him, I I am picking up my people, and I'm pulling them close, and I'm singing 
over them. I'm singing a precious word over them. And we're about to jump in. We're, we're in a series about Jesus and, and, and serving like Jesus. And here's the thing. Whenever we talk about who Jesus is versus who we are, it's real easy to get down on ourselves. It's easy to feel guilt move into condemnation. It's easy to feel that conviction move into shame. And, and this is what I just, I just feel like for someone in this room, I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you're feeling. I don't know what challenges you might be facing, but I just sense that God wants you to know, whoever it is in this room, and maybe all of us, I don't know, but God wants to pick you up and draw you close to him, right up on his chest, and he wants to sing over you words of life, words that change you, and then the words that flow through you and change your family, and then through your family, change your workplace and your schools and your and the, and the community that you live in. God wants to speak a word that is transformative, and it ripples out and changes the world around you. I just believe that for someone this morning, and I bless you as we dive in to God's word. Amen? Amen. You guys ready? Okay. Lord, I was faithful. I did what you asked me to do. Mm. As I said, we are actually wrapping up a series today on serve like Jesus or the servant Jesus. In the first two weeks, we really focused on, you know, understanding the nature of being a follower of Christ, which is to be a servant. When we look at Jesus, he's recognized as the suffering servant. If you look in John chapter 13, Pastor Russ did a wonderful job of showing us how Jesus says, I'm the master, you're the servant, the servant's not greater than the master, and I've set you an example. So when we look at Jesus and the way he serves, what we're looking at is a picture of our lives, what God wants to see in and through each and every one of us. Then week three, we, we, dived in, we dove into Christ-like service as being marked by spirit-filled dependence using Isaiah chapter 42. Then week four, uh, we did Christ-like service isn't boastful, or, but always empathetic. This is Isaiah chapter 42, verses 2 and 3. Today, we're going to go to the next verse for today's sermon. So, what does it say? Isaiah chapter 42, verse 4. He will not falter. He being, according to Matthew, Jesus, he will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. And I just have to make this connection for you. Why the islands? Israel is not an island. Why does it say islands? Because that is, a, that is a phrase that means for the Jewish people, the ends of the earth. They're thinking way out there, all the islands, the coastlines, they're all going to put their hope in Jesus. And here's why, because Jesus' service, you guys ready? Jesus' service is marked by a hope filled endurance. Why do I say that? Because he will not falter. He will endure. And whatever he puts his hand to, he's going to accomplish the task for which he has been sent. Jesus endures in his work. And it is hope-filled. He will not be discouraged. And here's what's wonderful about a hope-filled Jesus is that when he works in his enduring work, 
The hope that is filled in him pours out and it fills us. And so we're called to emulate this, this same type of service in our lives. We're called as Christians to be people who serve with a hope-filled endurance. There's a story that I've heard many times, and I'm sure many of you have heard this story as well. What I didn't know is actually from, is that it's actually from a book, 1977, they don't really know, is by a person named Lorne Isley. It's called The Star Thrower. Now, I just wanted to share this story with you. And the story goes like this, that once upon a time, there was an old man who used to go to the ocean to do his writing. He had a habit of walking on the beach every morning began, you know, before he began his work. And early one day, he was walking along the shore after a big storm had passed and found the beach littered with starfish. As far as the eye could see, one side down the next, littered with starfish. Off in the distance, the man noticed a small girl approaching. As the girl walked, she paused every so often, and as she grew closer, the man could see that she was occasionally bending down to pick up an object and throw it into the sea. The girl came closer still, and the man called out, Good morning. May I ask what it is that you're doing? The young girl paused, looked up, and replied, Throwing starfish into the ocean. The tide has washed them up, and they can't get back into the ocean on their own. And when the sun comes up and gets high, they'll die unless someone throws them back in the water. And the old man replied, but there must be tens of thousands of starfish on this beach. And I'm afraid you won't really be able to make a difference. The girl bent down. And I just imagine that girl bent down looking at him, didn't even look at the fish. Uh-huh. And she threw that thing as far as she could into the water. And she smiles at him and says, it made a difference to that one. And I think when we talk about the hope-filled endurance of Jesus' ministry, that's what we're talking about. It doesn't matter how daunting the task may seem, Jesus will continue his work until he finishes. He won't falter. He won't stumble. He won't grow tired. He won't grow weak to the point of quitting. He may experience tiredness. He may experience weakness. But you know what he won't do? He won't stop. He endures. And his hope provides hope for every single starfish that's thrown back into the life-giving water of his spirit. That is the ministry that we see in Jesus. He does not fail. We may not see it in the time frame that we want to see it, but here's what we know. Jesus doesn't fail. If you agree with that, come on, somebody say amen. amen. There it is. <laughs> and here's what we know, just based on the fact that we're in this series, that when Jesus shows us his service as being hope-filled endurance, we know that our service is to be what? Hope-filled endurance. God is looking at his people. I think God is searching to and fro throughout the earth, looking for a people who can endure as he endures, not in their own strength, but in the strength that God provides. 
But I think there's something we can dig in a little bit deeper when we say hope-filled endurance. What is, what is at the heart of a hope-filled endurance? Well, we can look at John 3, 16, and what does it say? It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So we know that the big vision, if we zoomed out, at the heart of hope-filled endurance is a passionate love for the world. But that passionate love produced something in Jesus that made him say, I must accomplish the work for which I was sent. I have to do it. And I want to talk about that a little bit this morning. In Luke chapter 2, we see the story of Jesus <laughs> as a boy. And we don't have a lot of scriptures about Jesus as a child. In fact, we have the birth narratives, and then we have this, one story. And in this story in chapter 2 of Luke, what we see is Mary and Joseph every year traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover at the temple. And obviously that means they're lugging Jesus with them as they go to the temple every year. Now Jesus finally turns 12 years old. And they go, as they always do, and they start going home. And as they leave the city, they get to the outs, you know, out along their journey when they realize something's different. Something's not, it's too quiet. Have you ever had that feeling? It's too quiet. It's all of a sudden you're like, I know my kids are in this house. And if it's this quiet, something's not right, you know. So they go around, they're looking for Jesus, and they figure it out. Oh, it's quiet because he's not here. He's not here. Now, when I was young and before I got married and before I had kids, I would read this story with a lot of judgment in my heart. I mean, I would just be like, what kind of parents, okay, would leave their, the son of God, like they didn't know. I mean, come on, Lord, did you really choose the right person? I mean, you know, and, and now I have kids. And the conviction of the Lord has fallen upon Daniel Anderson. I was, Ransom, my eldest, who's now 12, uh, was one years old, two, just almost two, I had, and, and Mercy, my 10-year-old, was now 10, is, was just in a stroller. And we went and visited family in Korea. So I visited my mom and my, my, my mom's side of the family there in Korea. And it was a really cool trip. Well, one day in Chunju, Korea, yes, it's, that's a city name, Chunju, I know it's different, but we went, and we, guys, we went shopping one late one night, and they were having this amazing sale at this athletic clothing store, and we were like, okay, great. We walk in there. There's no air conditioning, uh, so they just leave the doors open. I was like, oh, okay, that's cool. Yeah, that's great. So I'm, I'm in there, and I find some really cool athletic gear. I'm like, oh, this makes me look like I'm in shape because the Lord knows. <laughs> the Lord knows the truth. So I go into the dressing room, and I put it on, and I come back out, and I see my dad with the stroller with Mercy, and I'm like, oh, that's real cute, Dad. I was like, where's Ransom? And he goes, and in and his typical brusque, like, military attitude, he's like, meh. <laughs> he's like, that's not my job. <laughs> you graduated. My parenting was done when you graduated high school. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, let's, I'm just going to go right by that one. Mom, where's Ransom? She's like, mm, I don't know. And, I, and all of a sudden, I realized this small story, about the, literally, about the size of this stage, there's not a lot of places for a, a one-year-old to crawl to 
I mean, he can't walk. Where's he going to go? It's not a big store. And I'm looking, and guess what? He's nowhere to be found. And I kid you not, the horror of that moment just, just, and I, I, I started running a city block in every direction. I mean, I can't imagine what these Korean people were thinking. I mean, there's like this half Korean white guy running around. His name is Ransom, so it's not Korean, so they don't know what I'm saying. I'm just screaming this word out, ah, ah, you know, and I'm like, Ransom, and I'm running around, and I kid you, for like 15, 20 minutes, I am, I thought, I lost my child. And I wanted it with all my heart. I wanted to blame my dad and my mom. I was like, this is your fault. But then I thought, well, it is my son. <laughs> you know? Okay. And I come running back around the corner, and there's this Korean family. Apparently what had happened is he crawled out, into, out of the store, up the sidewalk to the next building, which was an apartment building, and said, oh, I like stairs. I'm going to climb these stairs. And in Korea, doors are left open, even apartment doors in the apartment. I mean, like... He's just climbing these stairs. On the fifth floor, there's this Korean family sitting. They, they, they were sitting on the floor at a table. Uh, in Korea, sometimes you do that. You sit at, at a table that's low. And, so they're, and they're like looking at him like, Nuya, which is Korean for who are you? <laughs> you know, There's this white baby boy crawling up our <laughs> steps. Like, what is happening right now? You know, I, I, you know, and in Korea, listen, in Korea, white Blonde hair, blue eyes, you're a rock star because it's like a unicorn. They don't get that over there. It's, it's just like, I mean, like you want to talk about like, well, anyways, let's move on. So, so, so they're like, they pick him up like, oh, he's so cute. Oh. And they come walking back downstairs and here I am screaming and yelling and I see them and I, and I mean, I burst into tears. My dad said he'd never seen my face drain of color like that. And I've been injured before, you know, I did pole vault and I actually one time landed in the box, which is like where you put the pole, and I totally popped my ankle out. It was totally terrible, right? But this was so much worse. And the point being, don't lose your kids, guys, okay? <laughs> the, that's the point of this. No. <laughs> so I love this story of Jesus, you know, Sarah, or Sarah, wow, Mary and Joseph, I want to say Sarah and Moses. What is the deal with that? I, okay. I preach for a living, guys. I speak for a living. No. So I love Mary's response. They finally find Jesus, and they say this. What have you done to us? I mean, it's not like, oh, we're so glad we found you, right? It's like, they, it's total apparent. It's a parent move, right? It's like, what are you doing to us? He's 12 years old. And in 12-year-old fashion, Jesus responds with, why were you searching for me? Okay, listen, if Ransom, who's 12, looks at me ever and says something like that, I'm going to slap him into next week. <laughs> whoa, whoa, I'm talking about prayer. Like, you know, put my, lay my hands on him in the name... Come on, guys. <laughs> Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Now, I have this word here, must, because this Greek word, I had to, the Greek word there actually means, can anybody guess? Must. It means I have to do this. I must do this. Now, if this happened just here, you might just chalk it up to Jesus being 12 years old. Say, hey, I know better, <laughs> right? 
But if you look throughout all of the New Testament, this Greek word that says, that's translated as must, it occurs 102 times. But out of the 102 times, 44 happen in Luke and Acts, which is the same author. Almost half the times it occurs in the entire New Testament. Why is that? Well, scholars have pointed it out, saying that the reason Luke uses this, this word is because he's trying to signal something to us, the readers. He's trying to show us something about the ministry of Jesus. This is what the commentary says. It says the Lucan must, now you know you use the word a lot when it's attributed to, like now it's the Luke must. It's like you can't say, yeah, the must that's used in the New Testament. No, Luke. Luke's the guy who just overuses. Have you ever met someone like that? They just keep saying like or um all the time. Oh my, Father in heaven, it gets on my nerves. And then I start doing it. You know what? You know what? This morning, it happened to me. I said, y'all. Okay, listen, you guys are infecting me. <laughs> but the Lucan must, it says this in the, in the, let's get to the sermon, please, okay? The Lucan must expresses God's governing providence in the life of Jesus, as well as the necessity of accomplishing his father's salvific will. It's the governing providence in the life of Jesus. It's a scholar, some scholars actually call it, instead of saying the Lucan must, they'll say it's the divine must. Jesus was operating according to a divine must. There's a will at work in Jesus that caused him to say, I have to be about my father's business. And Jesus' entire life and ministry is marked by this, by his divine must. I can't get distracted. I have to be on task. I must endure in this work. It was the catalyst, the motivating factor to the hope-filled endurance that we see in Jesus, this divine must. And here's what I'm submitting to you this morning, that if you want to see hope-filled service alive and well in you, we have to get a hold of this divine must. It can't be something that I do for fun because I'll tell you what, service is not always fun. And I just saw a children's volunteer say, no, it's not. <laughs> you don't have to do that. We... <laughs> If you don't know this, hear me now. God is at work in your life. God is at work in your life so that he can be at work through your life. God chooses to minister his kingdom will in the earth through you. He's so devoted to touching people's life in partnership with people that he became a person. This is why Paul in 2 Corinthians says this, chapter 5, verse 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Okay, we all get that. Not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to whom? Us. He's committed to 
us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, ambassadors as though God were making his, appoint, uh, his appeal through who? Us. God is making his appeal in the earth through us. God works in tandem with humanity. What does all this mean? This means that when we hear of the divine must that, that just strengthened and empowered Jesus' ministry of hope-filled endurance, we know that God has a divine must for you. A divine must implies a divine vision, a divine destiny. And that is what Jesus took upon himself, for God so loved the world. So he went into the world, and that vision of seeing people saved produced in him a divine, I've got to do this. When's the last time you got up for children's ministry and said, I've got to do this? There are times, <laughs> I know you love kids. There are times, I remember when I first started out in ministry, I I thought I was going to be a worship leader. I was going to sing. I was going to do the whole bit. I learned guitar, you know, the whole thing. And I was playing for Jesus on campus of that university. Not, no, I wasn't playing for all the girls walking by. I was playing for Jesus. <laughs> I don't serve unless it serves me. Just sit on that for a second. How often is it that instead of being driven by the divine must for God's divine will, we serve because we think it serves us. Maybe it gives us a platform. Maybe it gives us a name. Maybe it gives us money. Maybe it gives us, oh, everybody looks at me and thinks I'm such a great person because I serve. But listen, God has a better way for the world than our own pride. Going back to that commentary, he writes this, the Lucan must is associated with the will of God, which personally summons men and women, this was written a long time ago, and which fashions history according to its plan. Jesus submits to that will, and so too do his witnesses. Have you witnessed God's love at work in your life? then you know there is a divine must placed upon you to share that same divine love with others. If God has saved you, God wants you to extend that salvation, his salvation, to others. Now, we can't save people, but God does. And Paul even says, hey, unless someone preaches the word, how can they be saved if you don't preach the word? And if someone doesn't preach the word, how will they ever hear it? You've got to do it. But as with anything in God's kingdom, there are hurdles. We live in a broken world and we have an enemy that wants to distract us and keep us from ever embracing our God-given destiny and being driven by the divine must that changes our lives and the lives of the people around us. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Come on, people. This is the truth of the gospel. Jesus is greater than the enemy. And he saves us so that through us, others can be saved. Thank you. 
So the rest of the time that I have with you today, what I want to do is I want to identify some hurdles for you, and then I'd like to close with the nature of Jesus' enduring hope. The first hurdle that I think we all often fall prey to is very simply being unaware. There is a divine must. Some of us know it. The only problem is we're often unaware of it. Amongst all the musts of our lives, right? I must get my kids up and ready for school. I must go to work. I must pay my bills. There are a lot of musts in our lives. And sometimes it's easy to lose sight of the divine must for all the other musts. All the other musts of this life are placing a demand on us. But as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we submit all our musts to God's must. In Genesis chapter 28, there's a story. Jacob's running away from Esau, and Esau's out to kill him because Jacob stole his father's blessing away from Esau. So he's out running away, and he comes to this one place. He lays down to go to sleep, lays his head on a rock, and he has a dream. And in the dream, he sees angels coming down, touching the ground, going back up. At the very top of the ladder, God stands there, and he, and, and he begins to make this pronouncement over Jacob. And we can pick up the story there. In fact, let's just jump to verse 14. I think we have a slide for it, don't we? Verse 14 right here, it says, Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. So here's the thing. We hear, I, we can go, go ahead and go back. We, we can hear already. It says, All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So I am blessing you so that you can be a blessing to others. I don't know how many times I've said it this morning, but I'm going to continue to say it. God saves us so that through us, others can be saved. Okay, go to the next slide. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. How often do we go about our day forgetting that God is even a part of our life? And when we forget about God's presence, we inevitably forget about his heart and his will. And when we forget about his heart and his will, we forget about the divine must that motivates us to action, and we end up doing nothing. The second hurdle is very simply this. We become distracted by the good. We become distracted by the good. What do I mean? There's a story about Jesus in Luke chapter 4. It says, when the sun was setting, people brought to Jesus all who had various sicknesses, and Jesus lays his hands on them, and he kills, oh, he kills them, wow. That is not true. It's not true. I was just seeing if you were awake. He heals them, in fact. It's the opposite. He heals them. And then from there, he begins to cast out these demons, right? He gets done. He's tired. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving. 
they try to, you know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like a, that sounds like momentum. That sounds like success. That sounds like a successful ministry. He, in that moment, could have stayed. They tried, they begged him not to go. Don't go, stay. And how easy would it have been for Jesus to stay among all these people praising him? All these people saying, you healed all, you healed everyone who came to you. You're amazing. But what does Jesus respond with? He says, I must go. Don't be distracted by success. We want to believe somehow that success is a sign of God's will. But that's not necessarily true. Just because something is successful doesn't mean it's God's will. So what I'm asking of you is to ask this question of yourself. Is it good or is it God? Because there is a difference. If you fill your life with the good, you will have no room for God. But if you fill your life with good God, all of it is good. Because God is good. Okay? This is why Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. The next one is distracted by weariness. Jesus, in the same story, it says that at evening, he starts ministering. And then later, it says at daybreak, he went to find a solitary place. Well, what does that mean? Most people just skim right past that without thinking about it. That means Jesus stayed up all night. Listen, I get tired preaching after one service. I mean, just coming up here on stage, I just thought, oh man, I can't wait for that, that, oh man, that pillow, it's just calling my name this afternoon. But you know what? There are moments in time, listen, we all experience weariness, and it's important for us to find those moments to rest, but there are also moments when the divine must begins to just stir up in you, and you know, you know, I'm supposed to stay at it. I'm so, I, don't, I don't feel like talking to this person. They're like a black hole for emotional energy. They're just sucking it right out of me. They're like a vampire, right? And, but, but you know what? Here's the thing. Every, you know what I'm talking about, some of you. You just feel that all of a sudden that divine must starts to rise up inside you. You just know if I listen and share love, something can happen. Let that divine must rise up in you today. Don't be distracted by weariness. The next one is... Don't be confused by worldly desire. There's this story where Jesus, I could read all the scriptures, but we're coming, we're coming down and I want to honor your time. But there's a story about Peter, you know, and he recognizes Jesus as the son of God. And, and Jesus is like, hey, upon this rock, upon Peter, I'm going to build my church, right? Well, then right after that, he says, hey, the son of man is, has to be, go to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer. He's going to be killed. He's going to die. But on the third day, I'll rise, I'll rise again. And Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. Scripture says that he rebukes Jesus and says, this will never happen to you. And Jesus responds with this. He says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have the concerns of God on your mind. You have worldly concerns. You have the concerns of man. What's interesting, it was, he didn't say you had the concerns of Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan. You have the concerns of Satan. No, he said, get behind me, Satan. You have the concerns of man. And I could preach a whole sermon just on that. 
But here's what we see. Peter was operating under a worldly expectation of the Messiah. In Jewish culture, understanding the Messiah was the Roman government was going to be overthrown and he was going to establish the Jewish kingdom right then and there. And guess what? Jesus was saying that was not going to happen. Don't trade in God's divine must for your worldly desire. In closing, Matthew chapter 26. tells the story of Peter again. Bless his heart. Which is another? I'm infected, y'all. <laughs> but he tells the story and later after Jesus rebukes Peter's rebuke, Peter opens his mouth again, which, you know, is always the start of a bad story, I think. <laughs> but Jesus is saying, hey, you guys are going to abandon me here soon. And Peter says, no, 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 uh-uh, nope, not me. I'll stay with you forever. And Jesus looks down and says, son, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me three times. Story goes that Jesus is taken in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's taken before the Sanhedrin, for a mock trial. And Peter's kind of standing on the outside, away from everything around this burning barrel, and people are coming up to him. There's this little girl that comes up to him and says, hey, aren't you one of the guys that was following? He says, absolutely not. Then another person says, no, hold on. Yeah, you're, you are a follower of Jesus. And he's like, no, not at all. And then finally, it says in Matthew chapter 26, verse 73 and 75, after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent, it gives you away. That's like me coming down here to the south. And people know somehow that I'm not from around here. Then Peter began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately, a rooster crowed. And then verse 75, then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. Peter's endurance failed. Peter's endurance petered out. saw what I did there, right? I know this is supposed to be a moving moment. I'm sorry, Pastor. They're playing the music. I gotta get serious, y'all. No, but listen, how many of you have been there? Your strength failed you. Your strength failed you. You knew what the Lord was asking of you. When I was in college, I started getting up super early in the morning to pray. By myself, I'd go to the chapel and I'd pray. And guess what happened? My one guy on my floor said, hey, can I join you? I said, yeah, I'm not going to kick you out. Let's go. So we started getting, we were getting up at five o'clock in the morning. Okay, in college. Okay, so I wasn't going to sleep until like four. And we'd get up every morning. We'd go put on some worship and just pray. After two months, there were about 
100, 150 people joining us for prayer. Okay, yeah. No, that's, that's awesome, right? It's amazing. And I knew the Lord was asking me to continue, and I didn't feel like a leader. I didn't feel like anything. But people just started coming. And guess what happened? I got tired. I got weary. And even though I knew the Lord was asking me just for a season to press in, I stopped. Within three weeks, that entire time of prayer and people gathering went away. And I wept bitterly. We've all been there. And here's why my endurance ran out. Because it wasn't God's endurance for God's plan. It was about me. Then in John, three times Jesus asked Peter a question. Three times Peter denied him. Three times Jesus asked him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? The third time Peter says, he's hurt because he knows. What do you think he's thinking about this entire time? This is after Jesus rose from the dead. They're sitting around a fire having breakfast. And Jesus is saying, do you love me? Because you denied me, do you love me? And Peter's like, yes, Lord, I do. And he says, feed my sheep. What is happening there? Jesus is setting the divine destiny, the divine vision, so that Peter could embrace a divine must. So that Peter would go on from this place to become the Peter who was crucified for the name of Jesus. And so honoring of God, he thought to himself, I'm not worthy to be crucified like Jesus. He asks, according to tradition, to be crucified upside down. This man who couldn't hold to Jesus' name in front of a girl, now giving his life in the most brutal way. There is a divine must for you. And I don't know where you're at in your journey. And as I bring us to a close this morning, we've all failed. We've all stumbled. Our endurance is weak. But it's in our weakness that God's strength is made perfect. So we don't have to feel guilty about our weakness. We embrace the conviction that leads us to the altar where he can then heal us and put this divine must inside of you. So as you go forth from this place, I want to challenge you, I want to exhort you, meet with God again. Tell him that you love him and feed his sheep. Serve like Jesus with a divine must that fills out a hope-filled endurance. Let's go ahead and stand to our feet as I pray. And if you need prayer this morning, if you're at the end of your rope, if you feel like your endurance is just shattered and weak, let us pray for you. That's what we're here for. We have people who are up here ready to pray with you. Not because their prayer means something, but their prayer in the hands of an almighty God can affect so much more on your behalf and on behalf of the people in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the King. Move in us, change us, make us, mold us, transform us. God, we're weak but we rely on your strength this morning. Help us to embrace a divine must as we are rooted in the divine vision of your kingdom on this earth. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Come get prayed for. Us.